Before we get into the D vitamins and schizophrenia, John, can we talk a little about uh, your career? And- yeah, sure, Frank. I, I'm a psychiatrist. So I'm a medical graduate who did psychiatry, and I've been involved in research uh, for quite a few years now, about 20 or so years. And I, I'm an epidemiologist looking for the causes of mental illness, particularly the causes of schizophrenia. And um, so that's uh, that, that's what really motivated this particular research. But but I'm actually quite close to you in Norway now because I'm working half-time in Denmark. So I have a half-time appointment at the uh, University of uh, – that big fan at Aarhus University. And um, so uh, I, I miss uh, I miss um, uh, being in the Nordic region at the moment. It's very hot and steamy here in Australia. <laughs> and are you going back to Denmark, John? Uh, next trip will be in February. I'll be there for about five weeks in February. So I spend about five weeks there and come back for five or six weeks. So I have, I'm having some holidays over Christmas. as it, We have our summer holidays uh, uh, at this time of the year. What was the reason that you became interested in finding the causes for mental illness? Well, I think it, it's always... Um, been um, um it's always been of interest to me serious mental disorders like schizophrenia i remember as a medical student um being fascinated by how seriously ill these people were that through no fault of theirs they had this serious psychotic disorder and i also worked as a nursing orderly as a undergraduate sort of having to look after seriously mentally ill patients so when i finished my medicine i thought i'd do psychiatry and i really enjoyed working uh, with patients with serious mental illness i'm a clinician um and i have looked after people with uh, many people with schizophrenia now i'm really focusing on research and uh, so I don't look after patients now. Um, there has been progress over the last 20 years or so, but there's still a lot more work to be done. For people that do not know what schizophrenia is, what is it, John, and how can we recognize a person that have it? So it's a poorly understood group of disorders. I think the most important thing for your listeners to know is that there's not one disease called schizophrenia. It's like ancient physicians or ancient doctors used to think there was a disease called fever. And, uh, and then they realized that, oh, well, wait on, here's a fever that happens every three days, and here's a fever that happens every four days, and they tried to divide it up. And that's about where we are now with, with serious mental illnesses. We, we see the, the surface-level symptoms. We see um, evidence of the broken brain, like hallucinations or delusions, but we really don't understand what the upstream mechanisms are. So um, that that's, that motivates my research. What are symptoms? What? Uh... Uh, oh, yeah, yes. I, sh- I, sh- I should have told you a little bit more about that. I apologize. So, no, no so this is a <laughs> this is a group of disorders that affects about one in a hundred people. It affects men slightly more than women. Uh, so for every three men with schizophrenia, there are about two women, and there are many disorders developmental brain disorders that affect men more than women, things like schizophrenia, uh, autism, attention deficit disorder. And uh, conversely, there are many disorders that affect women more than men, things like depression and anxiety. So uh, the symptoms and signs of schizophrenia are very different between individuals, but they often 
re relate to hallucinations. So people may often they hear voices that aren't there. Sometimes the voices are very distressing and say um, unpleasant things about the affected individual. As well, people can have delusions, which are false beliefs out of keeping with uh, their education and cultural and religious backgrounds. So quite often these delusions can be scary. Uh, sometimes they're persecutory delusions that someone's trying to harm them or spy on them or poison them. And sometimes they can be grandiose, uh, that people have special powers. And... Um, as well that people have cognitive symptoms where their memory doesn't work very well, they, their concentration is impaired. So as a consequence of that, they tend to have trouble organizing themselves. They sometimes lack drive and motivation. And um, so the, the, it's, it's almost as if the, the parts of their brain that, that they need to plan and, and to get motivated and to remember and focus, those parts of the brain don't work. And I think it's, it's very important for people to understand that this is, not a, um, this is not a disease that people can just snap out of and think happy thoughts and get well. It's not like they can do mindfulness therapy. Uh, and I think, Frank, we, we, we all know what depression is like. Depression is part of everyday life, mild or moderate depression. We all know what anxiety is like. That's part of the human um, spectrum. But I don't think it's so easy for many of us to understand what it's like to have thoughts that people are trying to harm you or, or, or to hear voices. It's uh, quite a um, – uh, this is a group of disorders that affects many of the aspects that make us particularly human. The first thought that, that I get is that uh, a lot of people can get into this uh, category because uh, a lot of what you're saying can hit a lot of people. That's the first thought. <laughs> well, no, 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 not not really. Um, it's actually quite hard to get a diagnosis okay. of schizophrenia. So there are there are some people that um, many people have the occasional hallucination that may pass. That that doesn't qualify for a diagnosis. Okay. You have to have you have to have a certain number of symptoms for a certain range of time, okay. and you need to be disabled. So okay. this this is a dis the disorder that stops people working, uh, stops people studying. It really does interfere with their life. They they can be very distressed. Quite often, the loved ones, their parents, their loved ones, um, their neighbours, they, they notice that this person's not their usual self. They they appreciate something's not quite right. And then if, if people um, uh, are, um, are assessed, uh, this, is a not, not, this is not a diagnosis that's given quickly. It requires very careful uh, assessment and observation. So um, the... Uh, the uh, disorder is not a common disorder. It, as I say, it only affects about one in a hundred people. But uh, in contrast to things like depression, which affects about one in three or one in four, and things like substance use problems, um, alcohol abuse is is very common. And um, but uh, schizophrenia is not not such a common disorder. Now, uh, seven years ago, I had a lot of anxiety problems. And I, and I remember when I got all these panic attacks, I remember that yeah. the feeling was extremely intense and I got these uh, visualizations of fear that this is what's really going to happen. For a, for a person that's uh, having schizophrenia, it's he or her experiencing the same kind of uh, feelings and this intense yeah, because when you get these panic attacks, you are sure going to die. So it's extremely intense. Is it the same for people that have schizophrenia? It, it, it um, 
people with severe anxiety disorders with panic attacks or PTSD can have um, uh, can have experiences like they have flashbacks or quite often when people are anxious, they'll hear sounds or noises, uh, just as when people are, are suffering acute uh, bereavement. If they lose someone they love, if a loved one dies, they may hear the person's voice or think they see them or whatever. They are all understandable and um, th that's within the context of things like anxiety. But in schizophrenia, the symptoms emerge more slowly um, and uh, they, they're more troubling. They, uh, they tend not to go away. So within the setting of anxiety disorders, uh, when people recover from their anxiety, the, the voices and delusions usually do not persist, but but um, but I don't want to leave your listeners thinking that it's a clear, um, robust set of diagnostic criteria. There's no blood test or X-ray that lets people say, "Oh, you've got anxiety disorder, you've got schizophrenia." And 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 some of the work that my colleagues and I have done have shown that. Uh, in the early phases of mental illness, sometimes people can have a mixture of different symptoms. And even if someone has one type of mental disorder, they may develop another type of mental disorder. So I think um, uh, there are um, th th there is uncertainty around the, the diagnoses. Anxiety disorders are much more common. Um, uh, schizophrenia tends to come on in the in the uh, uh, late teens, early twenties, and um, and usually. The, um, particularly the, the family members notice quite a marked change in the behavior and the capacity of the, of the affected individual. Is it because they start to behave like another person? Is, they, is it because they in some way get another personality? What, what happens? No, no, absolutely not. Hmm. And in fact, that's a, that's a, um, uh, it's a misunderstanding that's, that comes out of some Hollywood cliches from the 90s. <laughs> 40s. So it's nothing, nothing to do with split personality, um, nothing to do with the two faces of Eve or all those dreadful movies. Um, th th these people have everyday personality, personalities like you or me, and then their brain stops working properly in a reliable fashion, and they have these hallucinations and delusions. Um, no, they're, they're underneath it. They're, they're still, they're still their same personalities, and that's when you, when you get to know people. With schizophrenia, particularly when they're recovering, you, you see that they're they're very strong individuals. They it's quite a scary illness to have, and um, as they recover, they develop um, mechanisms to, uh, to to um, to to help them manage their symptoms. And and um, so I, 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 the people I know with schizophrenia are quite remarkable individuals who are really struggling through no fault of theirs to recover from um, from this disorder. Do they have problems uh, seeing the difference, uh, difference from reality from illusion? It, with with respect to the voices, they can seem very very real, and with with respect to the delusions, they may have a delusion that someone's trying to harm them, or someone's put a computer chip in their head, um, or uh, that, that there's um, some evil plot happening. And th the definition of a delusion is that you cannot talk someone out of them. Um, it's a it's an unshakable belief. So these symptoms, uh, they can respond to medication. They can also respond to various other talk therapies. So you can teach people ways to cope with those with those symptoms. Um, so one of the features of psychosis is that people may lose touch with reality, and um, that that can contribute to their their disabled uh, state.
Do we know what the parts of the brain that is active when they, for example, see uh, when they get illusions or hearing voices? Are there some parts of the brain that are more active than others? Do we know that? Yeah, there are various techniques where you can do functional brain imaging, where you can see which parts of the brain are using up more oxygen and and blood, and then you can assume that they are involved. So um, if you put someone with hallucinations in one of these functional magnetic resonance imaging machines and and they tell and, and you record um, if, the, the, if the patients tell you when they're hearing voices it, um, you it for many patients you'll see the parts of the brain that control processing speech and processing uh, auditory input they light up for people that have the the phase of the illness where they have trouble planning and lack of a motivation, lack of um, get up and go and ambition. Um, this is also can be can affect the parts of the brain that control that those planning and executive features like the prefrontal cortex. It's not a diagnostic test and it's only a group level difference, but there are clues um, that give us some idea. But but I think that type of map making, you, you, there's not a, a a little segment of the brain that you can put your finger on and say <laughs> this is this is where it is. Just like you can't say this is where consciousness <laughs> is. It's it's a the things like speech and language and cognition. They're higher order emer- emerging properties from from the whole brain. And um, so the brain the brain is a as as we all know, it's a cliche. It's a very complicated organ. And um, you know, I work in a brain institute where we're looking at flies and bees and worms and we and rodents and we still don't understand how those <laughs> rodents work. I was, let alone humans. <laughs> the reason I asked that question, John, is that uh, I was curious uh, if it was some if it was difference from from their brain operating brains. And um, so um, we we as I said before, we don't have clear simple biomarkers to put someone in a machine to say, you know, your brain says you've got schizophrenia. But my, my colleagues in Australia and in the UK and America have done studies that show that in, indeed there are parts of the brain that just change shape a little bit um, during the course of the development of the illness. They're, they're parts of the, of, the, of the temporal lobes that just shrink a little bit faster. They're still there. There's, it's, this is not like dementia where the brain can shrink quite dramatically but there are these changes that um that in- indicate that uh, that that the the organ the brain is uh, is slightly different in people with schizophrenia that said um we have a long long way to go and um and we really don't understand all the factors that cause the mental illnesses uh, like uh, any of them really let, let alone the complex ones like schizophrenia i think i read somewhere john that uh if uh, high-risk individuals smoke marijuana, they can get schizophrenia earlier. Is that uh, correct? Um, th- that is partly correct. Um, so if you just forget about people with family histories, if you look at the entire population and if you look at people that start to use marijuana from a very young age, say less than 14, those individuals do have a slightly increased risk of going on to get schizophrenia. However, most people who smoke cannabis or marijuana do not develop schizophrenia. As you know, it's a very popular um, recreational drug, and um, most people that use it will not get schizophrenia. But um, to be frank, to, 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 to be honest, Frank, I think it's important for your listeners to know that this is a, a serious, very serious group of illnesses. We have treatments that can can help 
many patients, but we don't have treatments that work for everyone. So we are really, really desperate to find things that we can prevent. So therefore, the, the evidence shows that there's a slightly increased risk of getting psychosis if you smoke marijuana. Therefore, we tell people, look, if you choose to smoke marijuana, you have to know the risk. Just like we tell people, okay, you want to smoke tobacco? You are now at a lot of risk for these disorders or those disorders. And then you can just you can do what you like. You can go bungee jumping mm. or go rock climbing. <laughs> take, take the risks. But mm. I think it's important that people understand that um, – so there's a whole range of risk factors linked to – schizophrenia apart from the genetic factors there are things um we'll talk about vitamin d later but also cannabis uh we found that um, severe trauma and uh, particularly childhood trauma can increase the risk and, and that's not at all surprising because um th- th- having a, a severe trauma as a child um, is very bad for your brain full stop so it's bad for your education, it's bad for your cognition, it's bad for every outcome that you could think of. So it doesn't it's not a strong one-to-one link between childhood abuse and schizophrenia, but there is a strong link between childhood abuse and bad health, full stop. And um so uh um but the other the other risk factors that we've been looking at are things that impact on the developing brain. And this has been one of the the, the the changes in our understanding of schizophrenia over the last 20, 30 years that that we used to think that something happened around about the time of onset in, say, a young person age 20 starts to hear voices, drops out of uni, becomes withdrawn, unable to, you know, look after their personal hygiene. And we, we thought maybe something's happened to their brain just around then. But in fact, there is evidence that something may have gone wrong with their brain in early life like even before they were born. So prenatal nutrition, prenatal infection, pregnancy and birth complications, these can all increase the risk of disorders like schizophrenia and autism and these neurodevelopmental disorders. So we see it as a, as a disorder of brain development, but the symptoms are silent. They don't break through until after puberty when the brain changes and there's a whole lot of extra things coming online. And that's when... The, the the symptoms emerge from my understanding at least is that um, for for example mushrooms LSD and uh, psilocybin or whatever it is this uh, kind of uh, hallucinogens are more popular these days and uh, what do you think about what do you think about that well uh, it's it's not my area of research Frank um so uh, I, I I think there's um. <laughs> so, so um so I have many friends who work in this field um. Uh, in many societies, um, people use different recreational drugs. So, uh, in, in, there'd be differences between Norway and Australia. Um, and in America, there's a, you know, there's a lot of addictive um, opioids happening at the moment. So, it, there's nothing new about this. Uh, the fashions change, whether it be crack cocaine or ice or, 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 or mushrooms or whatever. Um, I think in the 1960s, some of those magic mushrooms and salabi and whatever, they were more popular. Um, but uh, there's nothing new there. Now, with respect to are they good or bad for you, I think they're bad for you. So um, people um, can get addicted to them, particularly um, some of the drugs like cocaine and heroin or tobacco, for heaven's sake. For sure. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, alcohol. Uh, and if you were to rank order which which drugs impact on society? It would be alcohol by a mile, and then it would be 
tobacco, and then way, way down the list, it'd be cannabis. So, uh, so we need to, we need to have a perspective on that. But um, I, I, so going back to your question, I, I don't think the use of drugs is is particularly novel or new. The 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 nature of the drugs that the, they come in and out fashion of like 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 fashion statements that they change over time. I was just curious if uh, that kind of hallucinogens can uh, give people severe mental illnesses. There is some evidence that 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 those type of uh, more potent drugs do increase the risk of of, of psychosis or dep- depression or alcohol abuse. So it's a whole matrix of bad health outcomes as well. The person can have traffic accidents. They can get into trouble with the police, and they can have um, respiratory problems. So there's a whole range of bad outcomes there. Uh, and I think with respect to um, uh, if if a, if a person has a psychotic disorder, they can sometimes use drugs to self-medicate. That they feel unwell, they don't like they don't like the tablets that the doctors give them because they make them feel a little bit unwell. They can put they can they can contribute to weight gain, so they feel less stressed when they're taking some things like cannabis. But that what happens that when when the cannabis wears off, that can actually um, uh, worsen. The state of psychosis. So there's a there's like a vicious cycle between um, some of these pro- some of these drugs can slightly increase the risk. Once you've got the disorder, once you start using those drugs, it'll re- it'll it'll increase your risk of relapse. So it's a complicated bi-directional relationship. It's very interesting for sure. Uh, how did you discover that the D vitamins had something to do with it? Oh yeah, okay. So, so Frank, we um we, for many many years we've known that people. Um, people uh, who are born in winter and spring have a slightly increased risk of going on to get schizophrenia. And it's been looked at for decades. And, and we, we looked at it in Australia and we found that our season of birth was in winter and spring because we have our different months of the year because we're in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, and then we did – my colleagues and I did some work on – Latitude, and we saw that that the season of birth effect was bigger at higher latitudes. My colleagues in Denmark have done research on this, so we we thought, well, what what on earth could it be? It must be some seasonally fluctuating risk factor. So we thought about infection, and we thought about vitamin D. So I, I've done work on prenatal um, influenza epidemics, and um, it, it's been a little bit patchy. We 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 thought we saw some clues, but then it's washed out. And um, and in many countries, the um, many countries the um, the uh, there are more infectious agents in summer, for example, um, and um, and influenza epidemics don't always come every year. So then we thought, well, maybe it could be vitamin D. And when we first thought about vitamin D, which is I think you know is the sunshine hormone, it it has a it has a perfect sine wave that in, in winter and spring. Vitamin D goes down, and in summer and autumn, vitamin D goes up, assuming that people don't take supplements. If you're just reliant on your exposure, so in in Norway, for example, in, you can you, when it's a nice sunny day in, in Norway, you can make vitamin D in summer, but you cannot make it at all during winter. Eight, eight months of the year, day, I think. 
<laughs> you know this. So, and then that's not that's not kind of thinking about the you know the rainy weather, and it's too cold to go outdoors. So, any anyway, so when we when we thought about vitamin D initially, there was very little evidence that vitamin D did anything to the brain at all. So this was quite an, an important phase of our research. So my colleagues like Daryl Isles and Tom Byrne and Alan Mackaysim, we started to do animal experiments where we looked at the distribution of the vitamin D receptors and enzymes in the brain and we saw that they were there and in fact they were there in interesting parts of the brain that control dopamine which uh, is known to be linked to schizophrenia and then we did animal experiments where we actually put rats on low vitamin D diets and then looked at their offspring so they're only exposed to low vitamin D during during gestation and as soon as they were born they were put on normal vitamin D and they grew up and and in fact we saw that they these animals had slightly different shaped brains different shaped um, different types of gene expression they were more sensitive to various types of compounds as adults and um, so we, we thought that was um, sort of biological uh, it was, um, biological plausibility that the, these compounds do impact on the brain and then finally we started to move into into studies and I can tell you a little bit about the ones we've done in the Nordic countries if you like so one of the first studies we did was in uh, in Finland and uh, we went to Ulu in northern Finland and uh, you, you may be aware that there's a very, a very remarkable birth cohort study done in northern Finland. So they followed up everyone born in 1966 and they're still being followed up now. So in in Finland, um, like Norway, it's a it's a country that has um, very little sunshine for a lot of the year. So there's a recommendation that all babies in Finland should be given vitamin D supplements during the first few years of life. So in 1967, the mothers of the cohort was were asked, "Did you give your children vitamin D supplements?" And we followed up those that had. Had no supplements versus those that did to see who had schizophrenia. We found that for the boys, they had an increased risk of schizophrenia. Then the next study we did was in Denmark, where uh, when a newborn, when a baby's born, they get a little tiny bit of blood taken from their heel, a little heel prick test. And um, this this blood is put on a piece of filter paper, it just dries out on a piece of paper, and that paper is used to test for thing, rare things like cystic fibrosis and phenylketonuria and some other rare inborn errors of metabolism. So um, many, um, uh, many countries in the Nordic region have kept these little pieces of paper and we, we, we're very lucky and very fortunate to, re- to receive ethical permission to access some blood samples from people who went on to get schizophrenia versus those that did not. And um, so we tested vitamin D, and this is back in 2010, and we found that the, the babies with low vitamin D had an increased risk of schizophrenia. And then we thought, well, let's, let's, that's interesting. Let's see if we can replicate it. And that's the paper that came out last week, and we, we looked at a whole new sample, a much, much bigger sample, over 2,500, a much, much better assay. The assay is much more precise, more accurate. And we found again that those with low vitamin D, and talk about vitamin D deficiency, they had an increased risk of schizophrenia. By how so, much? Do you know? Uh, it, it went up by 44%. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. So um, and uh, so we 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 it, it, I, I don't want to over overestimate these um, 
or overemphasize these statistics because they're, they're, the, our studies in epidemiology are not that precise. But, but we thought that, that um, if we could – if you do a thought experiment, if you could put everyone in Denmark on the optimal level of vitamin D, we thought we could reduce the incidence of schizophrenia by about 8%. 8%. Now, 8% doesn't sound like a lot, but I can tell you this is such a dreadful group of disorders. I would be bending over backwards to stop 1% or half half a percent. And it's actually quite a serious matter that, uh, you know, no one expects for a second that schizophrenia is due to one thing. So that'll never happen. There's no one thing you can do to stop all cases of schizophrenia. But if we can, if we can stop just a small proportion. So, uh, but I'm going beyond the data now, Frank, and I need to emphasize that this is a correlational study. We just looked at baby's vitamin, baby's blood. We saw that those had low D, had an increased risk of schizophrenia. And, um, but it, the fact that we've been able to replicate it in a much, much bigger sample, it lends additional support to the hypothesis. You said something about the correlation between dopamine and uh, schizophrenia. What is the correlation there? So if you, if you look at um, rodent brains and, and map out where dopamine is made and where dopamine is released, and then you map out on the same brains where the vitamin D receptors are and where the enzymes that make the final active compound of vitamin D, you see that there's overlap. So the vitamin D receptor and related machinery is differentially expressed. It's highly expressed in the same parts of the brain that make dopamine. Now, my colleagues in Brisbane have published probably about a dozen papers on this. It's quite a robust, stubborn finding that in, in the rodents, so we're talking about rodent experiments mm. now, rats, in, in the rodents that have been exposed to low vitamin D during um, their gestation, we see that they have altered dopamine pathways in their adult brain. And then we look at human brains. So we're talking about post-mortem brains now. These are people that have died of incidental causes. They did not have schizophrenia. And we, we, we mapped where in human brain where are the vitamin D receptors. And, and again, we confirmed that they're quite strongly expressed in the regions that express dopamine. And finally, there's a lot of work happening in the Queensland Brain Institute now where they're looking at what are the signals that, that tells a developing neuron, a baby neuron, turn into a dopamine neuron? Um, so there are some really important gatekeeping genes that if you, if you want to make dopamine, you must turn on these various transcription factors. And we found quite robust evidence, and it's been replicated by other laboratories around the world, that vitamin D messes up with, with some of these key um, differentiating um, genes. And so if you take vit vitamin D out, and that's what happens in vitamin D deficiency. So let me put this in, a, in another way. The brain expects a certain amount of vitamin D. It expects it there, just like it expects oxygen and 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 um, and iron and folate and, and and proteins and calories and lipids and 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 um, carbohydrates. The brain expects nutrients and micronutrients to to put itself together. And if you take out a big chunk of of one of those nutrients, like in our case, vitamin D, it just disrupts the orderly development of the brain. Now you still got a perfectly good brain. The brain is very robust to, to disruption. So the brain wires up, but we think that it just occasionally 
makes that brain a little bit more vulnerable to some other disorders. And that's, so going back to your question, um, it's not just the dopaminergic parts of the brain, but that's one of the big clues that made us think that here's a, here's a risk factor that's worth tracking down. So that means that uh, getting schizophrenia has something to do with uh, where you live in the world. If, for example, you're uh, living in LA and it's always sunny, it's uh, less chance yeah. for getting a schizophrenia? Yeah, yes, that's exactly right. So there's been several studies where they've looked at latitude. So this is not like, do you live in LA or Los Angeles or, or Oslo? But So we look at um, the studies that have been done on the incidence, which is the number of new cases per year, and the prevalence, which is like how many people alive today have schizophrenia. And indeed, we found that countries that are further away from the equator have a higher incidence and prevalence of schizophrenia, and other people have found that as well. There are there are several disorders. There are many disorders, many types of disorders that have these latitude gradients. Multiple sclerosis is more common further away from the equator. Um, obviously, where I live in Brisbane, we get a lot of skin cancer, so there are things that go the other way. <laughs> so, um, skin cancers, whereas uh, further away from the equator. People get vitamin D-related disorders because they don't make enough of it. And um, so multiple sclerosis is also linked to vitamin D. It's not, not my area of research, but these latitude gradients give us a clue that, that, um, that uh, maybe vitamin D may be involved or sunshine. Will it help to supplement with vitamin D after birth or in childbirth? Well, we, we really don't know the answer to that, but, but wouldn't that be fantastic if that was the case? So... One of the reasons um, that one of the things that has motivated me to do vitamin research is I look at what's happened with folate and spina bifida. So, you know, when, when people start 20, 30, 40 years ago, when people said, gee, I think if you take more folate, which is a B vitamin, it, it, um, it may reduce the, the incidence of spina bifida. I think there's a lot of people that just laugh that off, you know, like, you know, how on earth could a B vitamin, you know, be linked to such a catastrophic disorder of brain development. And in fact, that they did the studies, and so then they they supplemented folate. And in, in Australia, it's in the bread and pregnant well, women who want to become pregnant take extra folate. And 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 indeed, there's quite strong evidence to suggest that if you increase folate, you reduce the risk of spina bifida. So I looked at that and thought, well, wait on, schizophrenia is a disorder of brain development. It's not as gross as spina bifida. But it's more subtle, and um, so maybe this we should look at this as well. And when you're looking at ways to prevent disorders, if you can if you can prevent it through safe, cheap public health interventions like putting fluoride in the water stops dental caries, or putting folate in bread reduces the risk of spina bifida. So, answering your your question, do, would giving newborn babies extra vitamin D reduce the risk of schizophrenia. We have actually no evidence of that at the moment. There was that little study from Finland that suggested that the babies that had no supplements, the, the boys went on to have an increased risk. But but my hunch is, and I'm going beyond the data now, my hunch is that could well be the case that that, that here's, a, here's a thought experiment, that maybe we could screen newborn babies and we screen them for the really rare, rare disorders like cystic fibrosis and phenylketonuria. And then we screen them for the common disorders like 
low vitamin D. And I'm talking about common in Nordic countries. These are about 20, 30% of babies in winter have this low vitamin D. So we could tell the mothers, look, your baby doesn't have cystic fibrosis, but it does have, your son does have low vitamin D. Make sure you take the supplements or, you know, whatever. And then wouldn't it be wonderful if that could reduce the risk of a brain disorder? But, you know, we'll never really know that because um, that, that, there's such a long lag. But we can tell the mums and dads that your, your children should have better, healthier bones. <laughs> because if you, if you have low, we're talking about the levels of low vitamin D that we're talking about, they are levels that the children will get rickets if they do not get vitamin D. Now, clearly, rickets still happens, but it not, not very often because most babies get vitamin D through their diets or their supplements or it's in formula. And um, if the mothers take it, they'll, they'll get it through their mother's milk. So, um, But we're, we're really talking about very, very low vitamin D, Frank. And, and, and one more thing I want to say before we finish with the supplements um, – your listeners will know that if you've got enough vitamin D, taking extra vitamin D will do nothing. You, you're just wasting your money and you don't – if you've got normal vitamin D, if you eat a lot of fish or, and you go out, if you go to Mediterranean for your summer holidays or if you go sailing in summer, you'll have heaps of vitamin D. Don't bother with supplements. You're wasting your money. If, however, you're, you're, you're indoors and it's winter and um, – then you should think about eating more fish or taking vitamin D supplements. And um, so that's, that, that's my general advice. Good for your bones. Uh, vitamin D has been a uh, special interest of mine for the last couple of years, John. Mm. And uh, because of that, some of the world's experts on D vitamins, they are alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, I, and I presume that he's pretty good at D vitamins from what I've read at oh, least. Yes. Yes, yeah, uh, so he's very, he's very important researcher. Uh, and what he said that uh, in Norway we do not produce D vitamins. I think it was seven or eight months of the year because uh, uh, because of the UVA and UVB. What he also said was that uh, we sh- for for males we should get three thousand six hundred uh, international units each day, and we cannot get that from food. So, what I find as um, as challenging in Norway at least, is that we think that we get a lot, a lot of uh, D vitamins from food in Norway, but uh, we need to supplement it from, from Michael Hollick's yeah. standpoint at least. Yeah, no, that, that's, uh, he, he's quite right. It's, you, you'd have to eat an awful lot of fish and what, um, to get, get anywhere near that amount. But, but I need to say that there is some debate about what the optimal level is. And, um, and within the vitamin D research community, there is some disagreement about what the threshold is. So the thresholds have been defined for bone health, and it may well be that Michael Hollick and his colleagues uh, are at at the higher end, and there are some other more conservative people that say, well, you probably don't need all that much, uh, and maybe 800 international units or 1,000 international units will be okay. But there's so many variations um, if you're o- overweight, you'll need more. If you're very, very low, you'll need like you'll need to top up. You need to fill the the tank, so to speak. Uh, if you've got dark skin, if you're a woman who wears a veil, um, if you smoke, I mean, there's a lot of factors. So, <laughs> I think this is extremely interesting, Jean, because I've had the pleasure of talking to experts like yourself. And there is one thought I got uh, got recently is that. We are tr- we are researching a lot, but uh, we still it's a lot of it's a lot of things we do not know. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, absolutely. Well, let, let, let me just um, let me comment on that because, um, I, and I think it's important for your listeners to know that there are um, there are a lot of people with very strong beliefs about vitamin D, but it's not always based on evidence, and you ha- you have to be very very skeptical, and um, so. We need more randomized controlled trials. Now, there were studies published just a few weeks ago in the New England Journal of Medicine where they gave a very large sample um, vitamin D supplements for quite a long period of years. And they found that overall there were no major differences for the the major outcomes. But they did find when they they went over the data a little bit more carefully, they found that some, some subgroups did benefit from vitamin D. Now, I can't remember all the details, so I can't give you – that's not, not, not my research. But but anyway, what I'm saying is, yes, you're quite right. You'd think that this has been – that this is a topic that you'd think we'd know all about, and in fact, we don't know much about it at all. And the whole thing about the vitamin D in the brain is is actually pretty new as well. And But 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 the, the, here's the problem, that if you get – if you get a disease – that stops you going outdoors, if you get a disease that makes you exercise less or a disease that makes you slightly overweight, then you will stop going outdoors and you will then, as a consequence, have low D. So if you do a cross-sectional study, you'll see that vitamin D, low vitamin D is associated with everything. Um, and then, and that, that's not cause. That's like, that's like saying, oh, I found the cause of rain. Whenever there's a puddle, <laughs> whenever there's, a puddle it, there's, there's rain. You know, okay, well, yeah, that, you've got it in the wrong order. And, um, and, a, and a lot of res- – not a lot, but that some people get, get it the wrong order. So. <laughs> You're now also in Denmark, as I said in the beginning, John. What are you doing in Denmark? So, so I'm very fortunate. I've been given a Niels Bohr professorship from the Danish National Research Foundation. And um, this allows me to uh, do research there half-time for, the, for five years. And I'm about two years into my, to my um, research at, at Aarhus University. There, are, there is a remarkable group who do register-based research there. Um, my colleague, Praben Bo Mortensen, um, uh, is the director of the National Center for Register-Based Research. They are a world-class, world-leader's in psychiatric epidemiology. So for me, it's a pleasure to continue working with my colleagues in Denmark. So we're doing work on vitamin D and we're currently measuring vitamin D in a very, very large sample. In fact, 80,000 samples. Wow. And that'll, that'll take about two, th- two or three years to do. And we're looking at um, maybe vitamin D, low vitamin D at birth links to other dis- outcomes as well. So uh, that that's underway. And we're looking at how mental disorders go together and we're looking at the role the genes and environment play. So, um, yeah, so I, I very much enjoy uh, working in Denmark and it's a great, it's a great privilege. Uh, in fact, all, all the, the, the Nordic countries have such wonderful um, health resources and, and linked registers um, that it's a privilege and a, and, um, and a great um, uh, asset for the world that we can go to places like Norway and do fantastic register-based research with the right approvals. Now, and of course, all the data we get is um, is de-identified and 
um, very strictly controlled. Um, but it allows epidemiologists like me to to explore, well, what, what are the factors that lead to diseases? And in fact, Norway, there's been fantastic birth cohorts there and, and mother-baby birth cohorts li- linking at a whole range of early life exposures and, and risk of um, brain disorders. So, yeah, so, but, I'm, but I tell you what, um, Frank, I'm struggling with the language. <laughs> I, I, I'm getting okay at reading, or well, I'm guessing what I can read, but, but I'm not very good at doing the Danish softy or understanding what people are talking about. I can see that one. I can hardly understand Danish myself. <laughs> <laughs> but you can read it. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give, uh, a couple of questions here, John, on the on this uh, on the end here is that do we know the correlation between uh, mental illnesses and the environment do we think this is the genes or do we think this is the, uh, the environment because i read somewhere that uh, they perceive that the genes has uh, a lot to say and not the environment it, it's it's both so it doesn't divide up like that in fact that that type of simple dichotomy is is not so helpful now we 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 talk about nature and nurture as if they're two sort of independent bodies but in fact m- mother nature um it, it relies on um genes to help instructions to to give the instructions but the envir- but the instructions are also in the in the environment remember i was talking about if you if you take out an expected nutrition like all of a sudden vitamin d is not there then you are taking away some of the instructions the brain is expecting to hear to to get these these compounds telling them to okay this cell you've got to be a dopamine cell and that's expecting a certain um, level of vitamin D. If you take out that level of vitamin D, you disrupt those signals. So going back to the question about genetics, so genetic risk factors are influential for every known disease under the sun, okay? This is like all diseases. Uh, uh, um, even things like whether you have car accidents is related to, <laughs> to, to your genetic factors. So you might think that, that that is totally environmental and there are the acts of God, but no, in fact, the, 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 they tend to cluster in families. Okay, um, and explain, so, elaborate on that one. Well, well so if, if you if you get a bunch of twins and some half of them are identical and half of them are not, and you say, you know, have you had have you had any accidents or motor vehicle accidents or have you had these life events, um, then you'll find that the identical twins are more likely to have the same type of ones okay. than, the, than the non-identical ones. Um, so that, that's not that's not very modern evidence. I want to tell you about the more modern evidence. So that there are studies now where they can look at variations, common variations in the human genome. They're quite cheap to do. This is not whole genome sequencing. This is just quick genotyping. And um, so then you can can look at well what genes underpin schizophrenia or what genes underpin risk of multiple sclerosis or diabetes or hypertension or height or body mass index or hair color or IQ or educational attainment so those studies are now showing very clearly that you can develop th- something called a polygene score which gives you uh, you can get you can look at thousands of re- regions of the genome and say gosh you've got a slightly increased risk of being tall or having um, hypertension or having diabetes or having high lipids. Now, we are not quite there yet. They are not ready for risk prediction to be used in the general practice surgeries, but they are becoming more available. Now, going back to your question about mental illness and nature and nurture, both are important. 
there are some diseases that are more strongly linked to to environmental stressors like post-traumatic stress disorder. But uh, there are things like smoking and alcohol abuse, which are also linked to your 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 chance of becoming addicted is is related to some of these genes that we're talking about. So um, what we're trying to do with the Niels Bohr professorship in Aarhus is to, to put the clues from environment like vitamin D together with some of these new polygene risk scores to see how they how they add up. Now it's still early days. We've only had access to these scores in the last three or four years. So we've got a lot of new new types of methods that we have to develop, and that's what many groups around the world are now doing. What I find uh, interesting, uh, John, is that uh, do you think there's a, there's a correlation between personality traits and mental illnesses? So, so there, there are. We were talking before about psychiatric diagnoses, and they're not robust. So, we usually have a threshold where we say, to to be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, you need a certain threshold of symptoms. But below that threshold, there are people that function very well. They're they're you know they're very productive members of society who can handle their anxiety or nervousness or, or depression. And um, but some of those individuals who are who are have a have a lot of symptoms of anxiety depression um, they may be at risk of developing things like substance use or full-blown disorder that seems self-evident it seems like common sense so and then once you develop these more serious disorders where you you don't you don't function so well and you have troubles at work or at at, at school then then it really does derail you it, it upsets your whole career path so I, so there are many diseases that that we get when we're old like cancer or heart problems or high blood pressure or lipids or hearing loss or back pain but but the diseases that young people get are mental disorders so things like anxiety and depression schizophrenia they come on early in life like in the second and third decade of life and they don't always go away so these are the chronic disorders of young people and when you look at the burden of disease across the whole planet you'll see that things like anxiety and depression and substance use they contribute a lot to the burden um, compared to cancer cancer kills you when you're old Whereas depression and anxiety, they get you when you're young. <laughs> True. Yeah, many years of uh, of disability and mm. stop you going to work and stop you being productive. And uh, now, uh, uh, depression is a much easier group of disorders to treat, and the outcome for depression is is very very good. Anxiety disorders there are many good safe talk therapies that work for those. But I but I suppose the reason why I'm chasing slightly crazy ideas like vitamin D is that schizophrenia is such a dreadful dreadful illness um, and let me swear for your listeners that I heard a I heard a speech from a from a British um, uh, uh, Alistair Campbell who worked for the, um, the British Prime Minister and his brother died of schizophrenia and he said schizophrenia is a shitty disease and in fact he said it is the shittiest disease <laughs> that you could get and i thought okay well that that's that's that puts it that about gets it right this is a you know for some some people this is one of the worst groups of disorders that you can have and um so i i'm pretty desperate to find anything we can do to help people with schizophrenia and um so that that's why that you know my group are chasing a whole range of risk factors like genetics and, and vitamin D. So we just hope and pray that 
we can get better treatments and one day prevent this illness. And and uh, just to wind up, I'm actually very optimistic about this, Frank. I, I want you and your listeners to know that that I am 100% convinced that we will eventually work out how the brain is built and we will work out what factors contribute to schizophrenia and we'll have better treatments and we'll have better ways to prevent it. Just as we're doing that for cancer and just as we did it with tuberculosis and just as we did it for polio, it's going to happen, but it's not going to just fall out of the sky. We need to roll our sleeves up. We need to invest in better research and we need to keep our heads down. And It may take many, many decades, but it will happen. And um, we'll, we'll go down some dead ends. We'll make some wrong decisions. And then that's always the way research happens. You set up your hypothesis, you try to knock it down. And then if you knock it down, you've got to come up with a better one. And that's what we're trying to do now. We, we tried to reject the hypothesis. We thought, well, maybe we do it again. It'll go away. It was still there. <laughs> we, we have not been able to reject it. <laughs> that's a good to hear, John. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, John. It was extremely interesting. Okay. And, uh... okay, it's my pleasure, Frank. Have a great day, John, or evening. Okay, okay bye now. <laughs> yeah, bye-bye.